So welcome everybody to Theory Underground. I am the host, David McCarricker, and today we are now joined by Todd McGowan. Welcome to the stream. Oh, uh, Dave, thanks for having me. I actually, you know, I not only is it an honor, as always, and I'm just delighted to be able to have a conversation with you again, um, but you're in the middle of so much stuff right now with the LAC conference. And so... Right, that's was, coming up in a day, yeah. Yeah, are, are you instrumental in organizing it, or do you just have to prepare? No, no, I am the... Hillary, my spouse, and I are the organizers. We're the only organizers. So, yeah, so somebody has to cancel or arrange their thing. Like, can I speak on Thursday night? I want to be on a panel with this person. So that we have to handle all that kind of stuff. So it's amazing the amount of, uh, I don't mean to complain because it's great, but the amount of like individual attention everyone seems to require. Not everyone, like three quarters of the people are just put me wherever, that's fine. And then there's a quarter who, seem like they're everyone so uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, but it's 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 great so i i would but it, I, it's great but it's the last time i'm ever going to do it so uh this is going to be the last lack that i am that's here at vermont for sure so for if real? someone else wants to do it somewhere else that's fine but that's fine you want to do it wherever you are that is totally no good, no i want to i want to organize it in raytown missouri to make all of these people come to mikey because oh, <laughs> he be can't, great. he can't attend. He when can't it's go to them, right? He can't go to them. Yeah, right. And so, for the folks uh, who are kind of just coming into the call, maybe you don't know about the marathon stream that's been going on, um, or any of it. I just want to welcome everybody. Um, Todd McGowan is the author of a lot of very important books on psychoanalysis, desire, capitalism, identity politics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You can find a lot of conversations that he has had on the internet. He's talked to a lot of people. Um, and today is is kind of a weird, weird situation. Basically, this was going to be a conversation with Michael Downs of The Dangerous Maybe, who is one of the most, if not most, devoted students of Todd and his work. And, uh, you know, I, I get, but basically I get the benefit of Mikey having put in decades of work into theory, then having it kind of gel thanks to you and your Why Theory podcast, as well as your lectures and your books, which he's been just binging while working for the last several years, where a lot of it came together for him. And Mikey's been my sort of uh, tutor in all things Lacanian and Zizekian. Uh, but, you know, I'm not going to, it's not his fault that I'm just slow sometimes. And so I don't want him to take the full brunt of responsibility for the fact that I get it wrong. But, you know, I just, uh, I, I, we both have Mikey as a shared reference uh, in this way. You know, he, he's learning from McGow and I'm learning from him. And we've never had a conversation on this channel just one-on-one. -on -one, and I thought that this would be a really cool opportunity to, to talk about Mikey, actually, yeah. because, because yeah. he wants to be at lack more than anything. And today he was supposed to be in this slot to talk about the hashtag free Mikey thing that I've been pushing for at least two years now. And, but he can't, he has to drive long distance. He's doing like a delivery route to a different state. Um, and it's, it's outside of his normal hours of operation. And so um, it's really, it's debilitating and, and it's exasperating and it's really sad because he's got books in him that need to come out, right? Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's terrible. Wondering... And I, I even tried to. I'm like, look, we can waive the conference fee. We can find you. You know, you can stay with us, or we can find you a place to stay, so you don't have a hotel fee. But it was the time off of work, right? And the and the travel, so he still couldn't. He still couldn't make it. So. You know, it's it. Yeah, it's just it's debilitating. It's tragic. And, uh, you know, I I, I remember uh, I went straight through from undergrad to graduate school, but I I had to work and, you know, I worked even through college. But uh, in the summers in graduate school, so I have T.A. In the, in the, during school and then the summer I had to work. And I just remember working eight to five and then trying to trying to even read it was just mm -hmm. it was just almost impossible right like mm -hmm. there's something just mind-numbing about so about that schedule so i find it so impressive that he was able to not only read an immense amount of theory while working that schedule but even to read it while working two different jobs right like like i remember he told me he's like this is my favorite story about him that he read basically slavoy's collected works on a, his phone while working as a as a checking the IDs at a bar, and so he's he said a lot of people got in that were underage because I was just scrolling through <laughs> like Sublime Object of Ideology or Looking Awry or whatever, and I just I I told Slavoy that, and he was like, "That's the way my book should be read." <laughs> you know, so I think he really he really liked that, and I I just think it's so impressive just because. I've experienced how mind-numbing it is, and you just don't really feel like reading something that's intellectually demanding. And so right. it's really, it's that, it, I mean, that's part of how, not to be conspiratorial about it, but that's how, how part about how capitalism functions, right? Like it keeps going because it, it, it sucks the life out of you to make it, the energy to make an alternative, right? Or to do something else. And that's why you're doing what you're doing right now. Yeah, your time and energy thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I got the, <laughs> I was, I got the tattoo and then I, Anne was getting her tattoo while I was on the phone with Todd. And I had to go into this tattoo artist's bathroom and turn the lights off because the lights were attached to a fan that was too loud for the laptop that I was calling you off of. I, we're in Mexico. Yeah. So it was like, there was no place for me to go in this. And there was no office. And so, yeah, I was in this bathroom in the dark, having a conversation with you on the phone when I told you about the tattoo yeah. and you were like, what's a tattoo for? And I was like, Oh, time and energy. You know about that? And then like, I had to explain it. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, but exactly. So people are left with energy, with a, a time without energy and time without energy is garbage right. time, right. right? Garbage time right. is. And then the people, and the, well, as you explained, I'll just tell you your own theory back to you. Yeah. Uh, the, the, whereas the wealthy, they have plenty of time, but they have no energy to do anything theoretically interesting or, or do anything with their, their lives. So, so it's interesting. I talked to this woman, Helen Rollins. I wonder if you, had, you probably don't know who that is, but she's a, she's a psychoanalytic theorist and filmmaker actually. And she mm -hmm. worked as a nanny for a lot of different wealthy people. And she said it was great material for a future film, although it was so extreme, you couldn't even make a film. And there, and every single one of them, they just, they had no energy to even do anything, right? Like to do anything with their lives, even though they had oodles and oodles of time, all they had was time and they had no way to fill it up. So it is interesting how that, like, you could even imagine that the rich would like create some kind of new 
make some changes or, or make some genuine contributions. But once you pass a certain threshold of income, then I think you're, I think, according to your theory, I think, which I really like, then you lack the energy to, to actually do something when you exactly. have the time. So it is an interest that, that dialectical relation between the two is really fascinating. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's why Mikey's latched onto it so much is because, you know, he, he wasn't always like this. You know, there was a time when he was able to just study philosophy. He had his time energy in a way that no one else does. In Waypoint, I make the distinction between communal time energy where everybody has it versus like you have it, but no one else really does, uh, which, yeah. you know, if you if you if you have worthy goals at like like you want to be a violin virtuoso or like you want to know all theory. um no one's going to be able to appreciate it the same way. So the potential recognition to be duped by the idea that we could even get recognition is undermined because nobody else can actually go the distance to even get a sense for where we're coming from. Like right. at least, at least Peter right. Sloterdijk's mom, I mentioned this earlier today, at least Peter Sloterdijk's mom tried to read critique of pure reason at one point, which was enough for her to have a respect for it. Like she did, she couldn't read it, but she would pull it off the shelf and say, I am happy to exist in a world where a book like this exists. It just makes me happy to yeah. know that it's there because even if I can't climb that mountain, at least someone is and I can look at them doing it and go, in some other world. But but you can't even have that respect if you haven't struggled with it. Right? And so Absolutely. Yeah. The time the time energy thing is like, yeah, that's why there's still like this emancipatory aspect to it for me, which is like, yeah, do I want it for myself? Absolutely. But also I want to live in a world where people have it for one another to, to be able to do Absolutely things. Absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. So, right. And I think it's a, it's a really good point that it wouldn't be that everyone is doing the same thing. It would actually be a world in which everybody can do their own thing and they have the time and the, and the drive to be able to do that. I think that's, that's a crucial part of it. But I, I really like that. I, I, I didn't know that Slaughter Dyke story. That's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to yeah. find you the, uh, the citation. I think it might have been at the beginning of You Must Change Your Life. I'm not sure, though. But uh, Okay, that's cool. Yeah. So, so I have up on the screen, wage labor and jouissance, why the left needs Zizek to understand workers. And that's the, that's the article, everybody, from the Dangerous Maybe blog, where Mikey goes sort of, he does, it's the first time that he actually does theory narrative this seriously. Like he did it in that paper that won first place graduate prize at the Zizek conference back in Georgia in 2018. Um, yeah. he did, he, he did a little narrative then, and that, that's, that has evolved into the book that he's first publishing at theory underground, which is going to be called the final commodity. Uh, but this is way more narrative, but also way more theoretical. And so if jouissance is a term that you've heard getting thrown around everybody, it's really one of the ways to like, look, Todd's books are going to be the, the place to go. If you really want to think about it in this larger societal context, and how it is, 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 is how capitalism relies on our desire and our jouissance. But uh, this piece is essential for everybody who goes, well, what's the point of this for workers? Why does the left need this though? Well, this is the response coming from somebody who got, who had his relative time energy and then was forced into blue collar work. And he knows what he's lost. He knows what he's given up in a way where right. other people have like this hollow sense of, I could have been something. No, he's like, I was on my way to being something for a long time, and I and it was great, and now here I am. Right, 
Right. No, it's really, I think it's like he has a real sense of that loss in a way that other people don't. And I, I think that he also sees that the, the jouissance or enjoyment isn't in, like he doesn't have an imaginary sense of this thing that I've lost, but he, he sees that it's really in the like, the, the labor itself, like the certain kind of labor itself, right? Like there's not a divorce between a kind of like a, a labor that's, that you're, that you're committed to. And that, that like really you, you feel driven about, mm-hmm. but there's a kind there's an enjoyment in that versus a kind that just sucks a labor that just sucks out all of your enjoyment. And I think that's a, I think Mikey really has a good sense of the difference between those two kinds of, work or labor. Yeah. And is part of it also that like with especially physically taxing work, there's like, you almost like, like what agitation builds up in the body and needs release somehow, but it's not getting to release in, in any productive ways. And almost the only ways that are on offer for working class people are self-destructive. Right. I think that's right. And I think that the, but I, I think that the, it's like your, I would just say this, that I think your self-destructiveness is also what emancipates you. But if you're, but I think the, the primary modes of self-destruction that are offered to us are not emancipatory, right? Like they're, I think that, the, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of theories do a good job with this, like how can self-destruction be emancipatory? I think Better Call Saul may be the best one of all about this, but I think that one of the great things about Mad Men is that we see uh, the way that that self-destruction gets mobilized by the advertising agency to sell products. And and then it, then, then it, rather than being this thing that, like I would just say that when Freud discovers in 1920 death drive and this idea that there's something primordially self-destructive about us. He also sees like what can emancipate us from our situation, right? Like, like in order to emancipate yourself from your situation or to emancipate us collectively, there has to be something that's self-destructive. That has to be like, you have to be willing, use the term recognition before you have to be willing to put your recognition at stake for something else. Right. So, so, one of the things that you are destroying about yourself is your symbolic identity or the recognition that comes with that. And so your passions are always going to come against what gives you recognition. I think, and that's a, I think that dynamic is a really fascinating one that, 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 that it's almost like recognition is the way that our, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a way that our potential emancipation is held back and, and constrained both again, both, individually and collectively. Damn. So that's basically what I have to think through for the time energy book. Like that's, but that's that right there is like the essential kind of thing that I'm stuck on. Cause it's, it's not just like we have time and energy in this like void. Right. Or, and, and it's not just that it's caught up and fractured into capitalism, but also like if, the constraints are lifted on us if we're suddenly unemployed, if we're suddenly, you know, home because of COVID and we're like, oh, I'm going to do all these things that I always fantasize about doing when I'm at work or at school. You quickly realize, uh, uh-uh, I'm not doing these things. Right. 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 And so like there's it's really good. Dave. Right. Right. I think that the and that's why I think the importance of self 
constraint is really crucial, right? Like in order to even write something, you have to find a, either you have certain external limits that you, that you're dealing with and you come up against and you, you're pressing against, you're fighting against, or you find a way to constrain yourself, right? Like you say like, Oh, I've got to have this done. You don't have to have it done, but you're like, I've got to have this done in a month. Like I just have, I can't, I can't let it go. Right. Or I have to get this thing in within 150 pages, or I have to get this thing. I have to, I have to really work out for myself what uh, time energy is in a certain amount of space or time. Right. Like I can't, I can't just, I can't just let it, I just knew that, like, it, it, one of the things that really killed people that I, I went to school with in, in the doctoral program was that they, many people didn't finish, like half, maybe even three quarters never finished. And it's because they had such grandiose ideas of what they were going to, they were going to have a field defining project that was going to just, you know, change, define a new field or change the field or, and they never finished because it was just too daunt. There was just no limit on what they were trying to do. And I think like having that, having the limit in, is, is really, really productive. And I think that's one of the ideas of, to me, that's a crucial, I mean, it's a Hegelian idea. It's a psychoanalytic idea. I think it's really crucial. And can you give it to your, I mean, can you give it to yourself? That seems to me to be the crucial thing. That's right. kind of the, the big question raised by the last conversation, the one with Cadell last, it was about, um, killing ourselves with texts and like if your drive can hook on to taking on a serious challenge like uh you know the science of logic or being in time right um and but well we didn't really raise the question explicitly but it is the question in the background which is can you choose it can you what degree of choice is there in the matter where because obviously you're unconscious is the main organizer of your libidinal right. economy. Right. But I think we're, I think we make an error to think that, uh, freedom is conscious, right? Like I think that freedom is in the unconscious, not in consciousness. And so, because if you think about it, it's the unconscious where like what we decide consciously is more or less determined by our, whatever situation, like social situation or psychic situation. But the unconscious is always, it's always, it never, it never just goes along, right? Like it always disrupts. Like I was with, I was with, uh, we were walking with a couple today and we just had a little meal with them for lunch. And the one person said to me, oh, when we were doing, I was doing this and, and my partner, and she said the name of her former partner, instead of the current partner. And I, I'm intentionally not saying, because people <laughs> might know who these people are. For uh, sure. So, and, and, I, I was, and she quickly corrected herself. was like, oh, I must have said that because X, Y, and Z. But all those were kind of nice things about the new one. And I'm like, uh, I don't think that could possibly be it, right? Like, it's like unconsciously, she was reacting against this nice situation. You know, the, the new partner, it's going well, it's kind of nice, but, but she was... Like clearly there was some part of her that was revolting against this like nice situation. Right. And so I think that to me, that's a perfect indicator of the way the unconscious is, is, is it's not just going along, right. It doesn't just go along with the flow. So I think it's actually the index of our freedom, not 
our conscious choice. So I think the, ironically, it's the text that we feel like, oh, that's the one I have to read. Not the one I'm going to sit around and go, okay, I'd really like to read that. But instead, it's the one I feel like I have to read the, this one. That's the one. That's the one we're freely deciding on, right? Like in the sense of the unconscious freedom, right? Like that's that's the one that we like. I'm I'm right now. I, this is embarrassing to admit, but I, I was just talking to people earlier about this. I'm reading uh, uh, Count of Monte Cristo in, in by Dumas in French, and I I was I I'm like I have Proust. I have like all these things that I I feel like I should read, and I consciously want to read. But I'm like, I don't know. I feel like I have to read it. I, I didn't read it when I was a kid and all these people. And I, I, I was yeah. giving a talk somewhere and I was in a French department and I'm like, oh, have any of you? And like none of them have read it. They're like, and I can tell they're like, really? You're really asking us if we've read Counted Monte Cristo? And so I think that that, but I feel like that's the, like that is the free choice, right? Like, because I felt like I have to read it. So I almost think you should like go on your shelf and put your hand on something and like whatever you feel take, drawn to, that's where you should, that's what you should, that's your free choice, right? Like that's what I would say. And I think that's a really, I don't know. I mean, it's a kind of crazy idea of freedom, right? To say that the unconscious, because Freud didn't think that. Freud thought the unconscious is just necessity. Right. And I think it's really freedom. I think that's, that's what he's getting at. I, I wonder if I can work with that and tie it back into something I had said in the last conversation. Um, I was saying, you know, it's easy to be kind of dabbling in this and that and the other, seeing pe and, and, and kind of like watching people go hard, you know, so like, you know, you, you, you do a little bit of athletic things, but you don't do marathons. You, you know, go on hikes, but you don't climb mountains. You watch some, watch some YouTube conversations about philosophy, but you don't read primary texts. And, uh, you know, maybe you even like mess around with like a keyboard every once in a while, but you don't really learn music. And so it's like, and what, what I was saying is like, I'm not judging anyone for standing on the sidelines and dabbling with everything because you're getting a sense for what matters, right? right. But, I, but I am saying that you're missing out in life if you don't ever commit and dive into something. And so what I was thinking, though, is like a way of tying this in is like the libidinal economy is able like you kind of have a sense for some of your libidinal economy because you feel pulled in multiple directions all the time. Right. So right, right, I think right. that the ego, the ego side, the conscious side is able to make uh, what a take a uh, what, what Heidegger would call it a resolute stand on your historicity. Right. right? You're taking a resolute right. stand on one yes. of these options pulling you and you say, no, I'm going to commit to that. And I'm going to dive in. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think the ethics of psychoanalysis is also about choosing one of these as well. Maybe. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, I think that I really, really, really like that. I think that that idea of, you know, I always like that in Heidegger, this notion of like resolute, the, like resoluteness. Right. I think, I think that's a really important idea. And I think that that, and again, I don't, I'm not even sure that it matters. I mean, obviously, if you're, if you're resolute about your white nationalism, it's probably not great. But, but maybe you can't even be, right? Like, maybe you can't even be. Like, maybe there's something about that that already is itself a kind of, like, uh, a secondary position, right? And, and an avoidance of a certain kind of primary resoluteness. So 
I'm right. not even sure that that is even a, a danger. But I, I, but I would say I, I, I completely agree with that because I think that that is a way to follow your unconscious. Like that is a way to say, I feel compelled to do this thing and I'm going to not just, I think dabbling is a way to not follow your, what your drive is, right? Like what your passion, whatever term you want to use, like the psycho, in psychoanalytic jargon, it would be drive, but it could be passion or whatever you want to call it. And I think that like following, I think there's everything in capital is about trying to diffuse that because if there's something threatening about that, right? And I think one of the things that you're trying to do for Mikey is to allow him to, to be able to do that. And I think, and I think you're, you know, I mean, even your own, the, the very thing you're trying to set up is to facilitate that for people. So I, I, I mean, I'm totally in favor. I, it's interesting how in, in academia right now, there's a complete turn away from theory and philosophy in the sense that we understand it and uh, thinking in those kind of terms for, in favor of historicizing and, and like textual analysis, whatever. Uh, like if you, like I, I, my Y theory co-host Ryan Ingley was just at the film studies conference and there was exactly one panel devoted to theory out of thousand panels. I don't know something like not thousand, but 400, 300 panels. Oh my God. And the panel was, the panel was his. And there were like, 10 people <laughs> in the audience, no one, no one cared, but it's interesting. Like on, like for our podcast, there's like 30,000 people listening to it. So it's an interesting kind of split where there's these people like either outside the Academy or on the margins of it that are very interested in theory and plot. Like Cadell was saying this whole, like philosophy becoming even primary relative to science. Like everybody has to be a philosopher today in a sense. And yet in the academy, there's a complete abandonment of it. You know, in philosophy departments, obviously it's it's just analytic, basically in America, it's just analytic philosophy. There's no the kind of what we consider philosophy. Uh, and 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 in other, even in English departments is marginalized, film it's completely marginalized. So it's like our, here at University of Vermont, where I am and where we have, I don't know, like three, four, I think really important theorists, our graduate MA is just, just they're about ready to vote to make the theory class optional rather than required. It was right now, it's the only required class. And that, they're, going, they're like, let's make it optional. And instead, let's make a class on the theory of pedagogy or pedagogical practice. Mm. Let's make that an option for people. So, it's just a fascinating, you know, you can see how the, how the thing is just from that, I think. And so this is like, this I, is I like, find it fascinating. Yeah, go ahead. This is like business ethics fulfilling or medical ethics fulfilling your philosophy elective, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. That's exactly it, Dave. It's exactly it. And I, I think, so in academia, I think it's terrible, but there's this whole place where you are and where Mikey is that there, that there's this kind of flowering of interest and commitment and just it's it's amazing so i think that you know the number of people that are reading hegel now is probably higher than it like not i mean adjusting for percentage population growth it's probably higher than it's ever been since hegel wrote the phenomenology in 1807 so it's a fascinating kind of uh, time to be living i think so totally fascinating time, and I, I the you know my hope is is just to that by 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 saying 
you know, that, that committing to things and going deep, going in the deep end is inherently worthwhile. What will, what, what is triggered and frustrated in people as what I call time energy fragility will create a, a will bring about a, a, a raising of consciousness about how we need to restructure society so that we can pursue these things. Because right now when people say, I don't have time for that, you don't, it's true. You're right. right. There are, there's, there's a gold mine next door and you're poor and you're not allowed to put your grubby hands on it and you're supposed to get back to work. But the fact is, is it's right there and you're getting older and you're going to die. Right. Like that, this right. is uh, right. earlier, earlier uh, uh, that the book, This Life by, by Haugland, I think I, f- I forget how to say his name. Martin Haglund. Yes. Yeah. Haglund. Yeah. I uh, who, who brought this up? I, it was Daniel Tut had brought this up and I was saying, you know, I can, I kind of see it as the, the theology of time energy. And he, he was like, he problematized that because I think he doesn't, he doesn't like the word theology in this context. Right. But my yeah. basic point is like, it's a, it's an atheist response to people who believe in eternity saying my time is finite. I can respect that you believe that you have eternity. I can respect that you believe X, Y, and Z things. But you should be able to respect the fact that I only know I have this life and this is it. And so the finitude of my life is the absolute value on it. And so when people are like, oh, no, we should leave the economics alone and just focus on politics of representation and redistribution, no fundamental restructuring of society. What you're telling me is that I need to be a slave. Right. Like the, the, the quote I keep pulling from from the Grand Risa today uh, is when he says, I'll just read it again. He says over the over the somewhat longer term, specifically during the upward phase. I actually sent you this in, a, in, a, in an email. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Over the somewhat longer term, specifically during the upward phase of the economic cycle. However, both wages and profits may show an absolute increase at the same time. And during such periods, the worker may either take the risk of accumulating a small fund of savings for the next crisis, or may broaden the sphere of his consumption to take a small part in higher, even cultural satisfactions. For instance, agitation for his own interests, newspaper subscriptions, attending lectures, educating his children, developing his tastes, constituting the worker's only share of civilization. And this is a quilting point, the only share of civilization which distinguishes him from the slave. And for me, it's just like that is the most important thing is, is like if we've abolished slavery, but at the same time universalized work in such a way that we're not able to do those things, we've universalized slavery. That's all that we've achieved. Right. 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 No, it's really good. I think that, that uh, that's such a great passage from Marx, I think. Uh, yeah, I think that the the um, the. I like that idea of the gold mine next to you that you can't access, right? Like, and I think that the one of the things that YouTube and internet makes evident is to people, I think, more and more, is the way that there are these things that are available, right? And and that you just don't have the time to give that they would require, right? Like, like I don't even know how. I mean, people do it, but I don't even know how working eight to five you could read the logic. Right. Like it's a like it's just such a it's such a I mean, I, I read it, you know, I read it a few times, but all the time when I had I had 
you know, plenty of free time to read it. So I don't, you know, that, that would be a great example. And one thing I want to speak about this eternity thing, you know, okay. Even if you believe in eternity, you don't know that you're going to be able to read Hegel in eternity, right? Like, like <laughs> I don't know if that's, I don't know if you have a, a copy of the science of logic in heaven. So, uh, you might as well do it. I think you have to do it now, right? Yeah, you you really, and, and also eternity might be one of those things that benefits from what you do here on earth. I know, right, right. <laughs> you really have to, yeah, yeah. Or, or heaven is a place where nothing really happens. Right? Yeah, ex yeah. Well, you know, and I, I know people in my personal life who think that throwing crowns for eternity saying glory, glory would be a wonderful afterlife, but I... Uh, you know, I hope that we get to that doesn't do doesn't sound so great. I know. If I we know. can't do philosophy, I'm not really interested personally. You know? <laughs> so yeah. um, I want to turn this over to a quick Q&A and then let you get back to lack because that is I, I actually did not know. And I apologize for my ignorance. I had no idea that you're the key no. organizer for it besides Hillary. And no, you wouldn't have known. No, no reason you should know. I, well, it's amazing. First of all, like that's I, I I've known about Lack since I studied under Gautam Basutakur, uh, because he oh yeah he goes to Lack, you know, and so yeah yeah yeah. In fact, but he's not going to be here this year. He had some kind of other thing he had to cancel. So too bad. Dang. Yeah. Well, um, quick anecdote. Uh, my fiance and I were getting married in July, and uh, the actual the PSA I've been rolling between the segments uh, for this marathon for like the last 10 hours. Um, it's about, uh, 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 we decided to just add some footage at one point because we were reading off the narration of the PSA and we were taking turns reading paragraphs, right? For the initial audio file. Yeah. And uh, yeah. at the point that I said something about like, tr hoping that Theory Underground becomes sustainable enough that I'm able to have a family. Uh, I said something about my soon to be wife. And so she laughs because she didn't know that that was there. And then I, you know, we, so yeah. we laugh, we laugh. Um, but we, we decided what, you know, we'd put an image over that. And so we actually put the image of the proposal. Uh, so this wasn't, this wasn't uh -huh. like, this wasn't premeditated, but you know, I just got me proposing in front of like this waterfall in Oregon. It's beautiful. And then um, yeah. it's got like her showing it off, her showing off her ring laughing and it's like a precious moment. And so now everybody is in love with us, of course, but the, uh, why am I bringing this up? We met because of um, just organizing on campus, right? And uh, with the when we we, we first bonded um, over the fact that of all the volunteers for the conference that I organized, she was like the one person who was like showing up early, like doing everything, all no standing around with her. She's always figuring out what needs to be done, taking on charge for things. Um, at one point, I was just totally decimated this was the conference with richard wolf and uh michael brooks and peter rollins and a bunch of other people it was it was, a, it was responding okay. responding to jordan peterson uh it was uh, something that i initially organized because jordan peterson had dodged a debate with doug lane on uh the zero squared podcast and 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 i like proved to be like this this power couple before before i'd even noticed her in any other way like physically yeah. or something. It was just like we connected on that basis. And so um, the fact that you and your, you know, your significant other, that you are both like co-organizers for a conference, yeah. I get it. I get like, the, I know the kind of stuff involved, 
And yeah. so it just makes me like really happy here to know that oh, you good. have that you good. have yeah. that with yeah. her. Yeah. So yeah. congratulations on that. Yeah. Um, right. As far as the the before we go to Q and A though, I just want to you know like let's let's say a few th more things about Mikey. Um, I'd like to yeah. hear a couple like maybe anecdotes of how you met him. Like what was the first thing you read of his that impressed you? Um, if people are going to read his blog, what's something you would recommend? Stuff like that. Yeah. So I met, how do I meet him? That's a good question. I think he contacted me just, um, oh no, 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 no. He was, he took a, he took a class that I was doing uh, either by from GCAS or some like uh, impact fest or something like that. And, and, and I got, I knew him that way. And then he did a, I did a, uh, I did it into some guy wanted to do an online this was during covid first year of covid some guy wanted to do an independent study with me or maybe it was before covid but he wanted to do an independent study online reading phenomenology of spirit and so i invited mikey to and and somebody else wanted somebody at uvm wanted to do it too and then i invited mike i'm like maybe you want to do it and so i i got his i mean i just let him on it and so i like uh, the other two guys were paying tuition, but he just, he was just doing it. I mean, they didn't know that he wasn't paying tuition, <laughs> but I just, but I was just, I just let him do it for free. Uh, and so that's how I really got to know him. And then we've kept in contact uh, over the, everything in the years since close contact. Uh, yeah, I, I, I know several uh, psychoanalytic theorists that, that actually teaches have his blog assigned to their classes so several it's really several yeah so it's really um a thing that people use as a reference point so i think that's pretty it's pretty great i think his it's interesting i my i have to say my favorite he'll appreciate this so i uh i on my on on why theory i once referred to jean baudrillard as a philosophical pipsqueak and he really like <laughs> let me <laughs> and i felt very badly about that because i hate that kind of like pot shot cheap shot kind of because i'm usually the recipient of it uh even though baudrillard is dead and he doesn't care uh but i i you know what i meant was like he's not he doesn't he's not versed in german idealism and 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 things like that but but it was nonetheless and mikey really likes it but i think his engagement with baudrillard is what's to me the most interesting part of his thinking just because it's the thing that i'm most against so i find it you know i find baudrillard a little bit of a, a kind of nostalgic thinker like he thinks that there used to be some kind of moment before this we got lost in virtuality I don't really think that, but I think Mikey has shown me little ways in which he actually provides a diagnosis of our situation. That's, that's pretty good. And so that I, I would just say his stuff on Bodiar would be what I would like best again, just because it goes against what I'm most committed to. That's, you know, he, I, I was on the, the other side of all of that. He, you know, I think he was playing offended. He's used to hearing people dunk on Baudrillard or use him in a sort yeah. of superficial way. And so it's like he wasn't, it, 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 he wasn't really shook by it. But I think he actually told me about his email he sent you where he was like, 
called you out on it. It's so funny. But yeah, he actually know, said, I'm happy now because I have a point at which I can say I really disagree with him on this on this issue. So that yeah, was, that is yeah, good. That's fine. Yeah. And it's funny yeah. because, you know, you're you're such a good, you know, teacher of, of all things Zizek. But when Mikey approached Zizek, when we were at that conference in Georgia in 2018, um, Mikey, uh, and I know that he's told you this story, but I'm going to tell everybody else because basically the thing that M- Mikey goes to him and says, look, I found so many things between your work and Baudrillard's that like I, I see so much richness here for dialogue and like in a lot of ways there's similarities and things, but there's also like really important differences, blah, 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 blah. It needs to be fleshed out. Basically, Slavoj was like, oh, absolutely, it's true. And and then um, Slavoj to- uh, basically gave him the symbolic mandate of writing the book. And yeah. that's what he's been doing for the last five years. When he's not yeah. at uh, when he's not at work, he goes to the coffee shop and he can't do the full six hour sessions he used to, but he goes for three hours. And uh, you know, but he's not but the thing is is he's productively procrastinating from the main book by doing all this research into all things like that kind of relate. And so like everything on his blog is a form of production of productive procrastination. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And and so basically, uh, the, the newest form of productive procrastination before he really signs off and actually writes the book this fall is for they know not what they do, which is going to be our pivot point here into the Q&A. So Mikey's been teaching for they don't know what they do. I have some prize enrollees. I don't want to call them students. I mean, they are students. We're all students. Um, and uh, a few of them are in the chat right now. And so what I'll ask of them in a moment, in a moment, is to turn on their cameras. Not just yet. Um, I want to give you a second to respond to anything else before we turn it over to basically for they don't know what they do Q and A time because we've got a couple of. No, let's turn it over. Let's turn, go, it let's over. turn it over. We interrupt this conversation for a quick message from our sponsors. All of Theory Plebe's content has been demonetized and self-funded for over a year. Plebe and Mikey work in warehouses while using what little time with energy that remains to do what they love. Theory. Part of Plebe's goals for 2022 is to focus on getting Mikey freed from wage labor. To free his time-energy from its reduction to labor power. Why? Because Plebe has learned more from Mikey than almost any professor or book. And if Mikey can get his time-energy, then he would be able to teach real online courses and publish video essays and that backlog of books he is always being obstructed from finishing. If you were unaware, Michael had a special kind of working living arrangement that made it possible for him to focus on nothing but the study of philosophy for six hours per day. Not just leisure reading, but struggling to articulate the hardest and most revolutionary concepts in the life of the mind. Mikey's standard was this, if he could not explain it to a guy on a bar stool at the pub, then he did not understand it. But by the time Michael was ready to begin making his wealth of knowledge accessible through courses and books, tragedy struck. Now he has to work full-time and support his mother. That is why we must pound sign for E. Mikey before we can free ourselves. Towards the end of this video, when Todd McGowan and Andrew of Master Signified Bodies both leave to go to bed, Michael Downs explains why Deleuze is an absolute genius. And then he breaks down what Heidegger means by being in a way that is more accessible and clarifying than anything you will ever find on the subject, anywhere else. Promise. If you think you have lots to learn from him, or that the world of theory would more generally benefit from freeing him from wage labor, then consider supporting at www.patreon.com the dangerous may be.
If you are one of the graduate students or professors in classrooms around the world who have found Michael's posts from the Dangerous Maybe blog helpful, then stop what you are doing and give a little back. He should have leisure time too. It will only help all of us. Pound sign for E. Mikey every dollar gets him closer to having his time dash energy again. Thank you for listening to this message from our sponsors, by whom we of course mean you, once you have helped in the struggle to pound sign for E. Mikey. P.S. When Mikey gets freed he will solve the riddle of history, complete the system of German idealism. Explain the body without organs without dumbing it down. Write the most important book on consumerism in America, and teach courses that are introductory and graduate level alike. All right, yeah. cameras, yeah. cameras on, folks. If you're there, pop out. Matin, it's good to see you. Jordan, Lukash, good to see you joining from Poland. My God, you must be very Likewise. late. Must be very what? Where? Oh, I said likewise. Oh, likewise for sure. Yeah, I'm from California. Very boring place. Oh, hey. yeah. Okay, because we can turn on the mics. I thought that we are quiet now. What, Lukash? What time is it there? At one a.m., my man. Okay, I'm okay. like pretty sleepy, but it's like so good to watch you guys that I'm alive, so it's fine. Fantastic. Well, guys, uh, what I guess I'll do is um, ask that everybody simply use the the hand raising thing, and we'll take turns. I'll call on people if it gets confusing, but for now, yeah, just raise your hand if you got a question. Um, my my thing is going to be like if we if we have time, I'm I'm curious about what Todd thinks about the four judgments section of the science of logic that Slavoj is using in chapter three or four. They don't know what they do, which was the hardest section so far. It broke me, humbled me. I'm still sad uh, and 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 humiliated about how hard it is actually. Um, but I th but I think I'm getting it. And Mikey did an extra lecture on the topic because I was having such a hard time and it really quilted a lot of things. And so I think I'm getting a lot out of it, but would you agree that the, that that's the fundamental point where uh, Slavoj is showing that the notion doesn't override material reality in the science of logic or just in Hegel's dialectics, that actually material reality is the excessive kernel that changes the notion and that we get that from the section on the four judgments. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that that, I mean, that's why I think that it's interesting because I think that section of where they know not what they do leads into the very title of or subtitle of less than nothing like Hegel in the shadow of dialectical materialism, right? Like, I think I don't know that he is as committed early on to the notion of Hegel as materialist, but then I think he kind of is coming to that idea in that section. And then from that point, then later on, that becomes much more prominent. The idea that Hegel is really, that, that it's a materialist. He, that, and he, he loves to say this, that Hegel's the materialist and Marx is actually the idealist, right? Like it's this flip, he likes to perversely flip things around. Uh, but I, I do think you're right about that. I think that, that he's trying to show that there's, that, that, that there's an encounter with some excess that can't be reduced, right, in, the, in that section that then changes the concept. I also like that there he's, is that the section where he says, why you have to count to four in Hegel or something like that, that, that his point is that there, that it's not just this triplicity, this constant triplicity, right, that there's this fourth moment. And I think that's, and it, and it, 
it, it even gets at the end of sublime object he does a similar kind of thing where he goes like substance is subject and then the final thing is subject is substance like which is again a way i think of saying the same thing like that there's some material kernel that is responsible for even the emergence of subjectivity so i think that that's he's i think he's even anticipating that in, as early as sublime object which is his first book on Hegel. yeah i mean his first book in english on Hegel. i guess uh the, the his thesis in french was on hegel too but cool. most sublime of his character yeah. so we'll go matin lukash all right okay. i'm gonna try to go quickly because uh Dave last night actually messaged me saying that uh, I'll get the chance to uh, ask you a question. And I was very pleased because of that. I'm already procrastinating, but uh, because the uh, your essay in the Zizek uh, response book uh, was a, a sort of fundamental way I was trying to uh, view this book uh, for they know not what they do, was trying to hope to connect Zizek's ontology to his notion of the act. Um, yeah. Please feel free to cut me off at any point because this is kind of a doozy. Okay, I'm just going to get right okay. into it. Perhaps yeah. Zizek's outline of the dialectic of law in For They Know Not What They Do and Zupanchich's staging of Antigone as a figure of consciousness embodying the blind spot of the symbolic law and family can give us a clue of how the very act itself can presupposit a universal ground for such emancipatory governance, which uh, in your essay you uh, say Zizek does not quite go far enough in uh, producing. Uh, and I'm, I'm saying this is implicit in, in, in his dialectic of law. Yeah. And Zupanchich takes the extra step of kind of making it more explicit. Um, yeah. uh, within the failing sites of uh, initiations, which have been foreclosed under newer forms of fetishist disavowals, uh, contemporary disavowal, things like that. Um, so can we not take your description of the uh, violent act a step further to have it address not only the death drive of the revolutionary subject, but also uh, the repeated shameless violations of even the unwritten dimension of the symbolic laws themselves. Um, not only do invocations of humanitarian concerns point out subjective violence while ignoring the objective violence inherent in capitalist production, but this distinction is in itself toyed with by those uh, in an obscene way who call their subjective acts of violence objective. Uh, so the revolutionary act of violence doesn't free the subject from the, uh, or does not break from the symbolic structure in which it occurs, which, which you, or uh, that's what I'm proposing, because that's, mm -hmm. a, that's what you say in the uh, essay. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it doesn't break them from the literal attachments to the existing order, but paradoxically, or it does, but paradoxically, it also pushes past these limits, which prevented the full identification with the ethical core at the heart of the, uh, that orders troubled symbolic law in the first place. I hope that wasn't too confusing. I was trying to go very quickly. Not no, no, that's good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, I am confused. So I just wonder if Todd, if you could kind of restate it from your, yeah, yeah. So I think the so the so the, I'll just quickly summarize the essay in two seconds. So the, the essay, I think it's called like Slavoj Zizek is not violent enough, and so it's just kind of I was like playing with his own perverse uh, tendencies, and and my point is that he doesn't ever. He says, like, I would sell my mother into slavery if if someone would make a V for Vendetta part two and tell me what the what what happens the day after, you know, after the revolution. And I said, well, why doesn't Slavoj himself ever tell us what happened? 
And so I say, well, the viol- like the violence of the Revolutionary Act has to be in some, so, and the self-destructive violence of the Revolutionary Act has to be in some way written into the idea of governance or, or how, and, and, and he really, I give an example of this and he doesn't like it at all. He really takes issue with it, uh, which is probably, it's probably a bad example. So I probably shouldn't even included it. Uh, but, and the, I think the idea is like, that, that Natan is asking is, it doesn't, isn't there something in Slavoj's own work and also in Alenka's recent book on Antigone about the way in which uh, the, there's a, there's a fault in the, there's this. Uh, we just say the last cannibal. Right, right. That's yeah. Olenka loves this joke. Like there are mm-hmm. no more cannibals because we just ate the last one. That, that the the book basically is an elaboration of that joke. So there's this obscene dimension of the of the symbolic structure, right? And that and that's the. I mean, what it's what Slavoj is. I don't know when he started talking about it. Maybe in Metastasis of Enjoyment calls the obscene underside of the law. And the point is that like the attack on that is the way in which self-destruction can be written into governance. I think that's your point, right? Is that right? Yes. Uh, may, may I quote Zupancic very quickly? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, Zupancic puts in her recent Antigone book, the revolutionary subject, uh, I'm, I'm replacing Antigone with the revolutionary subject, Yeah. responds to the master's pushing of the limit by establishing her own way of pushing the limit or of making the master push the limit all the way through until the symbolic law, the limit of which he pushes, crashes on him and the rest of the city. So there is a, a sort of principle to, to this justice rather than uh, what I take you to uh, say in, in the essay, which is a sort of complete uh, cutting off from, from the libidinal attachments to family and things like that. Unless I misread you. Well, I, I don't understand. What do you mean cutting off from... You uh, use the usual suspects and Kevin Spacey as an example. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I just use that because that's Slavoj's example, right? Like that's Slavoj's example of this uh, self-destructive act that is revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's in Fragile Absolute that he talks about that. He uses usual suspects and ransom and speed, maybe, as as this three examples so i i was that wasn't necessarily my example uh but i think that the like the i think the, i really like what you're saying i think that there is something to this that the and to alenka's point that the there's that the, that the danger of the, the like the the danger of the of, of the symbolics authority structure is the is precisely this underside of it, and so if the that the revolutionary act pushes at it by forcing it to take to to eliminate this underside or to 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 target it, and I think that so I I do think I really like the question as a way to think about how the the act itself, the revolutionary act, can be written into governance, and that seems to me like a way. Although I don't, I'm not sure that Antigone herself writes that into governance right like she's still she's still react she's still a she's still a, she's still a figure of rebellion right this would be a i think this is how lacan reads her and i think it's either like seven or seven or eleven 
it is seven or seven yeah uh yeah and i think uh i think actually um Vupancic may have she she kind of uh she she takes this reading from seminar seven but kind of like updates it a little bit uh via seminar 11 and things like that and i think she uh i, I won't eat in, up into everyone else's time but uh i i'm really interested okay. in the way she kind of uh okay, okay. Uh, has her own reading of it good yeah okay now it'll be Lukash then Jordan. Okay, uh, my question will be, and you guys can bash me with me because maybe it's a little bit disconnected, but I think it's uh, also connected to the course because we are talking all the time about retroactivity and the notion has changed retroactively. And I wanted to ask, because we are talking about master signifiers, but the interesting stuff for me would be the quilting point. And last year I was writing my bachelor's on retroactivity and Lacan's structure of signification and Zizek's ontology in connection with this, prompted by your thought, a video on Lacan's structure of signification. And I wanted to ask, because when I was doing research, I was like puzzled because you uh, and in your podcast with Ryan Angry, you insist on this distinction between master signifier and quilting point point and all the time you like stress it that they are separate and you shouldn't mix them but then I went to Zizek and I was baffled because like he just doesn't do it and no I know I, I know I know I know it's true it's 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 a fascinating point and and I mean Lacan does not distinguish so he absolutely doesn't right they're 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 totally intermixed and Slavoj bring holds them together too like Lacan does so it's 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 a minority report by me, so I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to say about that. It's just, I think there's something really productive about thinking about the signifier that provides the basis for signification, the master signifier, and then distinguishing that from what quilts and then and retroactively determines the way signification functions. So. The master signifier, as I agree with Lacan, that it's a signifier without a signified, right? But I think the quilting point is not a signifier without a signified because I think it's a signifier that actually structures all signification. Like it, it, it has, it has, it has a, in a certain way, it has a universal signifier, right? Like it's not, it, it is not, it is not absent a signified in the same way that the master signifier is. So that's the, that's the initial brief way that I would make that distinction. And I'm going to, I have a, I have a new book on Hegel that's working out this thing. And I, I hope to write a book on that structure of signification, uh, little video, because I really think it's an important distinction. And I politically, because I think to me, like the, the difference between Marx and Hegel is that Hegel thinks we intervene politically by adding a quilting point and Marx thinks we intervene politically by adding a master signifier. And I think that's the entire difference between Marx and Hegel. And if you don't think those two things are different, then, you know, that distinction doesn't make any sense. So that's, that's what I would say about that. But, but you're absolutely right. For Lacan and for Slavoj, that there's no distinction. Like, there's no distinction. So, and for everyone else. So it's just my own idiosyncratic thing. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, sure. thanks. Thank, yeah. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great question. Hey, Todd, uh, big fan. Uh, almost done through your, done with uh, your uh, book, uh, Emancipation After Hegel, which has been immensely helpful in reading uh, for they know not what they do. 
Um, I wanted to touch upon something Zizek talks about in the preface where he criticizes the sublime object. Um, and I'll read a quote here. Um, Zizek says in the sublime object that it, uh, quote, it basically endorses a quasi transcendental reading of Lacan focused on the notion of the real as the impossible thing in itself. In doing so, it opens the way to the celebration of failure, to the idea that every act ultimately misfires and that the proper ethical stance is heroically to accept this failure. So my question is, is the romanticization, romanticization of the failure in the Galian dialectic, whether you're talking about the failure of the object to ever coincide with its notion, or in Lacanian psychoanalysis, when we're talking about the sexual non-relation or enjoyment being dependent on not having, uh, is that is the romanticization a bad thing? Is the romanticization of failure, negation, lack, is that a form of disavowal that kind of neutralizes the trauma of these things? Is that what Zizek is trying to I guess, engage in some self-critique about in the sublime object? I do think that's what he's getting at. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that he, I think this is the ultimately the thing that he hates about sublime object is that it, he said this to me many times, that it, it's a book about, it's basically a book in favor of democracy. And he's, he, he's no longer a Democrat in the small d sense of the word. So I think that's part of what he's got behind that because he thinks that he, he would link that kind of, romanticization of failure to this embrace of like the, I think he even quotes Churchill, like democ in sublime object, democracy is the, the, is it the worst of all systems, but it's the best, whatever the line is, but it's the best of all the other ones, right? But it's better than all the other existing ones. Uh, so that, that's, I would, that would be my first impression, but I, I do think that, I think that what he, how I think a better another way to think of it is that he would come to think of he would say that later he would say we have to think of failure itself as a success right like so and I think that's the that's the Hegelian I think he becomes I I, I think he would accept this I think he becomes over the last I don't know thirty years more Hegelian and less Lacanian and so I think that that means that. For, for Hegel, failure is always a form of success, right? Like the way that we fail is like, that's what absolute knowing is for Hegel or the absolute. It's like you get to a point where you see that all these successive failures are themselves my successful way of knowing or of constructing an ontology or, or whatever. Uh, and so I think that's different than, than I think for Lacan, there's always this not always, it depends on which period of Lacan, but there's this idea of like you're there's you're coming up short of something. And there's some there's a there's a like a possibility that you're coming up short of. And I think that's different than 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 saying no the limit is actually constitutive, right? Like the the limit and I think in 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 his reading of Lacan from the beginning in Sublime Object, there isn't that yet that sense. I think that's what he that's the self that's the nature of the self-criticism, this different conception of failure. And this, you know, this idea that, that, um, I mean, you might say it, it might be even the, like, it might be the difference between lack and loss, right? Like loss suggests that there's something that's been lost that we can't get back to. Whereas 
lack is constitutive and, and and there's no it doesn't necessarily point to something that you're missing right so i think that that might be another way to think of the difference between the early like he 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 has this i think this is actually in the end of further than what they do he has this panegyric to the lost cause and i'm not sure that he would isn't that right at the very end like on like the second to last page like the only something like the only causes worth fighting for the lost causes right uh and i don't think he would say that anymore like i think he wants to say like the left shouldn't be afraid to win and that that's tied to this earlier question like uh uh what 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 do we do the day after the revolution like that's the important question not just the revolt itself and and i think he's become more critical of just this leftism of pure resistance and i think that's again that's part of what also this this romanticization of failure becomes this allergy to power right and he wants to i think he wants to resist that way of thinking rightly i think rightly yeah it almost makes me think of how the um uh thoughts people have or leftists have versus on like the paris commune or the spanish revolution they're like oh those were the good revolutions those were the pure revolutions because they failed right 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 exactly exactly and so whereas french revolution's a little dicey because it actually yeah. succeeded and they came to power yeah i think that's right right thank you todd sure i think at this point um Look, Todd, you should, first of all, you should have gone in, back to your organizing a while ago. So <laughs> I know I'm going to go back right now. So I actually yeah. have a call I have to make to, to get a, a locale for a certain event. So I, I, I got to do things. So. Well, well, guys, you all hang tight because I'm going to ask you all if you want to. Uh, I'm going to ask you all a couple questions about this course. And I just I basically let's let's close out. Like, Todd, if you want to give your closing statement, um, maybe while doing it also uh you know make maybe make your plug for the dangerous maybe blog uh and just let let people know about it um because i'd like a solid soundbite to be able to share out on instagram <laughs> yeah yeah so i i i have such i i i don't really have heroes but i think of mikey as a kind of hero of mine so i think that he again like i find i myself read the dangerous maybe and i think that it's a really valuable uh site for i mean i there aren't many blogs that i ever look at but that's one that i do look at as a way that to i think he does such a good job of dissecting hard texts and bring making them clear and i think he also does a good job of speculating on things that are happening and connecting them to theoretical positions and i i think that his he's just such a, a really a remarkable figure and i i i hope this that is that's come through in our discussion today because i i really think he's like uh yeah he, i find him very heroic and i i i often talk to my students in class about it as a, as a when, when i find that they're not doing their reading or slacking off and like going to bars instead of reading hegel i'm like really you know i know this guy he's working in a warehouse 40 50 60 hours a week and he still has time to read hegel so you have no excuse so <laughs> that's what i would say <laughs> thank you so much for dropping by and uh, hey, hopefully, Dave, thanks for having me man hopefully we'll all be at the next lack you do organize okay okay i'll take care see you, <laughs> take care. To see you everyone bye bye yeah good luck with the conference
man, to be at Lack tomorrow, that would be that would be epic. Um, so what I was gonna ask you all is basically the same kind of thing I just asked him on, you know, to close out. But basically, it's a little bit more about like what you're getting from the course, how the course is going. What you guys think about Mikey as a lecturer? You're allowed to say he's a piece of shit and he, it sucks. It's okay. You just, just I just basically want to hear your honest like feedback with how it's going right now. Not because as the organizer of it, it will make me happy and proud, but because I, I genuinely want uh, people who are tuning into this and thinking about taking on some difficult work this year or next year. Uh, to think about taking for they know not what they do after the fact because people are able to take this course on demand. One person, uh, Georgie from India, actually just got on with the scholarship and then he binged the whole backlog of lectures like in a week's time, I think. And he's just like an yeah. English teacher. Like, so he's just – the idea that people can take it on demand is is crucial here because – I think people think, oh, I'm not part of the cohort. I missed out. Then what's the point? So I kind of first is talking about like the lecture itself, but also I am interested in the cohort experience and all of that. So whatever you all have to add, uh, definitely curious to hear. May I start? Yeah, go for it. And is it, by the way, is it, is it Matin? Have I been saying your name correctly? It's it's Matan, but as a as a true Zizeki and I allowed you to uh, mispronounce it over and over again as, as a source of pleasure for me. But um. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Georgie. Not only uh, did he binge watch all that stuff, but he, uh, in a live stream that you were doing of an exegetical reading, he mentioned that he he was keeping along with the exegetical readings without even being a part of the course. Um, you know, and it's that sort of like uh, I don't know, renegade mentality that that really drew me to. Uh, not just Mikey, but uh, who else was it? Andrew, Nick, um, you, Vanishing when we mediators. were at the uh, Flissfetter course, um, I was really impressed with the ability of just like regular youngish people to be able to, uh, you know, you know, really have conversations with, with uh, professors and things like that. Um, I, I really wasn't expecting to ever have that ability. I, I was just kind of uh, tagging along and, and seeing that really, uh, really lit a fire under me. Yeah. Nance, I know you're thinking about it. Nance, I know you're thinking about it, so. <laughs> How's the course going? Come on, have you gotten anything out of it? Oh, Adam's here. Go, Nance, go. I'm, I'm here to push Nance off the bench. <laughs> I want to hear from Nance. You know what? One of the best things about this about this course is that this isn't in this cohort is that this isn't just the smartest guy in the room always trying to be the smartest guy in the room dealing with that guy this is a bunch of this is a bunch of people um i like to think of myself among them nance inclusive i loved hanging with luke uh lucas the other night uh where it's it's not about trying to be in so many cases you end up in these conversations with people who are just trying to prove how freaking smart they are which is cool and i'm glad that everybody's so smart but it's actually wonderful to be in community with folks who are recognizing where their deficits are 
and down to be vulnerable and show that and help someone like me who would normally be just uh, just straight up on the bench uh, feel like, you know what, yeah, I can be in this conversation. And I might not have all the definitions correct. Uh, I'm pretty cool with, with Lucas, you know, fixing my definitions or, you know, Nance grinning at my ass, making a, making a fool of myself or something, you know. Um, and I, you uh, imagine that in, a, in an academic, like a true whatever academic environment. Uh, you, you were talking about earlier, this is a place where you can where you can go and, uh, you know, I guess make some mistakes, you know, verbally and not have it be life ruining. It's not the end of your your college career. Yeah. Uh, I like that. <laughs> that's, that's that's all I got. Nance, go, go, go. Yeah, I really do appreciate the ability to learn in concert. Um, I I get really <clears throat> I go down like rabbit holes. I, I climb into my own belly button a lot. Um, but also engaging with this seriously because there's it, like I can sit at home in my bathtub and and try to read this and and read this and feel good about thinking that I'm getting it. But then coming in and doing this stuff in concert with other um, demonstrably intelligent people who like have uh, who can walk the walk the walk. Um, it's it's really good to, to I mean, some of this stuff I'm, I'm really encountering for the first time, like some some of the the thoughts that I I've recognized myself having, I'm recognizing them for the first time. And I'm like almost 40 years old. I've been, I've thought I'm a smart guy my whole life. And, and it's cool to, to be able to be confronted with the fact that I'm an idiot and it's awesome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Idiots unite. Cool. It's also actually really cool to see someone like like Mikey, who, as uh, uh, as uh, Todd had just mentioned, is is such a actually a heroic figure, but not not by way of like a single grand gesture. It's actually by way of a of practically a lifetime of tough fucking work, which you know our 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 upbringing tells us that's it's almost the opposite you're supposed to uh, as nance was saying you're supposed to make it look easy right you're supposed to if if you didn't make it look easy you're you're not uh, you, you know you're not naturally talented or whatever i like being the presence of people who aren't naturally talented but otherwise just doing the doing the fucking work dude i i think nance you brought that up in one of your reflections for one of the other courses i think it was like idea the university or the PMC course you're talking about skateboarders the, my, yeah my the idea of the university final about how like it's it's uh, unacceptable to do something to it's it's society rejects when you show you're trying hard like it, it has to appear as if you're naturally talented because we don't like to be confronted with our own lack of mastery in our own lack of time and energy mm. requisite to master new things based um 
Any closing remarks, everybody, before I turn it over to PSA? Thank you for putting this on. I may say something about like joining about after the fact, if anyone would have any doubts. Like, man, I wasn't even in any of the live lectures because I just can do it on the weekend because it's in the middle of the night and I, I'm working. And it's, you know what? It doesn't matter because uh, reading and writing on the forum, doing ex exegetical readings with you and and then uh, watching the recordings and I, I listen to them in work. And you know what? It, like listening to Mikey talking and Dave being like puzzled by everything, it's, it's perfect, you know, and just you don't have to be here. A life lecture. It's, it's, the only time I was actually at the lecture was when I was hitchhiking at the night and I was like pretty dead in the middle of the night. I, I remembered, oh my God, oh, there is this lecture. And I turned <laughs> in and, it, I, and I just stood like an idiot in the middle of the road with a sign and I was listening to Mikey talking about Hegel. It was pretty surreal. <laughs> yeah. Our new cool. mascot. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone as you know you can join in 2043 or something it's fine <laughs> well i hope everyone has a sense that it could perish before then so you take advantage of it while it's here and do your best to make it something that can exist right like uh because i don't know who knows what could happen hopefully a hundred more flowers will bloom uh once theory underground fails but the the main thing is just like for now it's here and if you get excited about four they don't know what they do after the fact and it's still around take advantage of it while it's still around right and i recommend everyone download and record everything have a backlog of your own files because when my youtube got terminated a few years ago um there were a couple people who had actually downloaded like all my content <laughs> and i didn't even have all my content so they they sent it to me um and you better believe i'm not backing up all this shit so I really do expect that if you if you want to have bootleg copies of this shit, uh, I'm more power to you because uh, I I don't have the hard drives, like I just don't. Um, but uh, the last thing is you just mentioned the exegetical reading component. It's something that we should probably talk about more, maybe at the after party or something like that tomorrow. You're all invited to the after party. Um, but basically, most of you all have been involved with the exegetical readings portions, so you're doing reflections on the forum, but then also a way of kind of forcing yourself to focus on the text is to read it aloud and then talk about it. And we encourage that you only do that after having given the text a first pass, which is why Adam just fucking Iron Maned through like reading the entire thing and then coming back over it again. So awesome work, Adam. That's superhuman. And we... We respect it. Um, but yeah, anybody want to say a closing thing about exegetical readings as a new form? It's not new. It was around in the medieval times. But does anybody want to say something about, has that changed anything for any of you? Like how you think about texts, maybe? Yeah, I'll say something. Um, you know, you know, it's strange. Uh, I'll listen to the exegetical readings, and for some reason, like the way that they mess up the reading, there there'll be like slips of the tongue, where they'll get kind of stuck on a place. And for some reason, just watching someone do that uh, through this like uh, reflection or something, it's a much different experience than uh, than just reading or even talking about it. That I think is a very useful supplement. Oh yeah. 
watching people get confused, right? <laughs> and it, for me, what it does is it changes the reading itself. Because when I do the reading on the first pass, I'm thinking, shit, I got to talk about this on a second pass. What am I going to say about it? So it makes it harder for it to come in one ear and go out the other, right? Because I'm like, suddenly I'm like, I got to actually talk about this shit. Uh, what were you going to say, Adam? You know, I, I was actually, it's interesting what you just said there because I was uh, i was talking with Nance about this the other day. Doing the, the first pass reading on, on a recording, I'm absolutely getting my like announcer mind going where I am not able to, Cog I cannot actually understand what I'm reading as I'm saying it. I'm, it's coming in my eyes and going out my mouth. It's total announcer brain. And anytime I find myself starting to think about the text, first of all, it messes up my reading. Um, I start having those slips like Matan was, was, was speaking about. And uh, I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to keep it a purely first pass where I'm trying to just get it into my head so that when I come back to it next time, I'm coming to it not clean per se, but at least, at least as clear as possible from any kind of ill-formed judgments. Because, dude, reading Zizek, if you start thinking you understand something on paragraph 17 of 95 – you you're 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 gonna be you're gonna be fucked it's like Candyland, dude you're all over the place sometimes and so i really love that first pass but that second pass i really appreciate it Matan. i think you you commented on on one of my slips somewhere maybe it wasn't you maybe it was someone else um but i really appreciated that because i didn't even notice necessarily how i made that that slip and and then coming back to it later uh it's like wow other people are seeing this and instead of feeling self-conscious like I normally would, I'm realizing, wow, this, this might actually be helpful for someone else to see, you know what, you can make these mistakes publicly and it's not going to bury you. And as a mistake, it's not even really even a mistake. It's part of the process. It's part of the, the burn, you know, when you're lifting, you know, you, you got it, the tingling that lets you know it's working. And it's, I'm loving that. That's, I'm loving that about the exegetical reading. Yes. That tingle. Excellent. Yeah, and I love the fact that it, it's like afterwards you go, I did that. And then you can always revisit it and hear yourself and go, oh, I've already learned since the last time that I read this. And so it's like in the, you know, it's a, the algorithmic stage. I talk about how, you know, if, if, if it's not seen, it doesn't exist. And that's stupid. It's not true. But also it functions in our head a little bit. We think, oh, I better do something. So it's a way of doing something that actually forces you to do something real. Right. And so it's like, for me, it's like a way of like hacking this shit. But um, with that, I'm going to roll the PSA, everybody. And then uh, before having the, the scheduled conversation with Nick Castellucci from the Vanishing Mediators, a.k.a. Kvoy, a.k.a. one fourth of the Young Jijikians, uh, about why we're reading Being in Time. And I hope you will all be able to come to the Q&A portion of that as well. But before that, um, Anne is going to come on the channel and she's actually going to run the show for a little bit and what you all get a dose of is ansplaining which is one of her coinages right so she likes to ansplain and so she's going to come on and talk about digital literacy and some of the books that she will be drawing off of in the digital literacy and critical media theory course that is beginning in freaking may it's coming up quickly here it'll be the second sunday of every month for six months and there's only one lecture or one lecture session per month because the whole point is a structure 
that forces us to pace ourselves to think about something, our relationship to our devices and our media and one another and ourselves. And then obviously you can't sustain that. You'll fall off and you'll get distracted. You won't be doing the journaling. You won't be doing the readings. You won't, you won't maintain that mindfulness, but then you'll be back for another lecture. Right. And so the whole point is to kind of this one is actually one of the ones where, yeah, it will be useful to people to, for people to take it after the fact on demand or whatever. But also, in a sense, the structure for this cohort and that time is crucial. And so I just wanted to say that before I roll the PSA. Um, thanks for hanging out, all of you. And I hope that I'll see you in more Q&A's for this marathon, which is currently going on 10 and a half hours. Um, fuck yeah, let's do another couple. And now a quick message from our sponsors. Just kidding. This will be neither quick nor from any corporate or state sponsorship. What follows is a description of Theory Underground, a thank you to its patrons, information about the upcoming tour, and three brand new courses that you might want to enroll in. Stay for the whole thing to get promo codes to save on those courses or information about the financial aid scholarship. Theory Underground is a philosophy lecture course gated social media site and publishing house by and for working class intellectuals and renegade academics. The subject matters dealt with at Theory Underground are the most important yet neglected for understanding ourselves, the world, and ways of possibly changing it. Because we have no corporate or state sponsors, only a small band of patrons, everything in this first year of operation helps immensely. Special thank yous to Bert, Nance, Marilyn, Carl, and Adam for your help in the $50 per month patron tier. If you want to help but the $50 tier is too much, consider donating towards meals and gasoline via Venmo or PayPal. The gasoline is for our countrywide tour of the U.S., where we aim to meet with supporters of this effort and do events to draw in new people who do not necessarily belong to marketing demographics predetermined by the attention economy. We will be giving lectures, leading discussions, and promoting several brand new books. Our goal is to only go to towns and cities where we have personal invitations from at least one person. We are doing this underground style, which for the hardcore punk scene in the US meant coming for long enough to get to know the area and do multiple events not this modern treadmill of a new city each night in an attempt to maximize fame and profit. If you are interested in being a host, guide, or volunteer, then please fill out the form at https colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground.com forward slash us hyphen tour hyphen 2023. In an attempt to utilize the resources made publicly available, we will be using libraries for most of our events. So if you have a local library card and can reserve a space for us, we would most appreciate it. Alternatively, some of you might have access to pretty epic venue spaces. Just let us know ahead of time. Now for the courses. The three upcoming courses are What is Sex, Digital Literacy and CMT, Critical Media Theory, and Being and Time. All courses at Theory Underground are available after the fact on demand, but some people get a lot more out of doing it live with a cohort. If you are looking to think deeply about the devices we have become reliant on while experimenting with new ways of reclaiming your attention span and relationship with yourself and others, then check out Digital Literacy and Critical Media Theory, 
a course that is structured to combat the attention economy while strategically using some of its tools to help us gain a freer relationship to our devices. If interested, an introduction to this course will be shared at the end of this video. Just make sure to click on it. The lectures for this course take place on the second Sunday of every month for six months, starting in May. If you sign up at tier three, you also get access to the recovery group component, which also meets once per month. Enroll with promo code CMTEARLYBIRDYT before May 13th for 20% off. If you are frustrated by the discourse revolving around gender ideology, left and right, then join us in thinking deeper about sex. Cadell Last of Philosophy Portal is joining up with Theory Underground to teach Alenka Zupanchik's What is Sex? one of the most succinct and cutting-edge works of theory dealing with the topic. Zupanchik is one of the Slovenian circle's most incisive critics of both naive progressivism and reactionary tendencies when it comes to thinking about the relationship between sex, culture, and subjectivity. If interested, watch Three Reasons to Read What is Sex, which will be shared on screen at the end of this video. What is Sex begins in May and goes through June, meeting for four lecture sessions and, surprise, you will actually get to meet Alenka Zupanchik herself. Use promo code WHATISSEXEARLYBIRDYT before May 7th for 20% off. And just so you know, everybody, don't stress the capitalization. I just make it that way so it's more readable. It's not case sensitive. Being in time is one of the most notorious, profound, and difficult works of philosophy from the last 200 years. Its deconstruction of modernity and fundamental challenge to scientism is a prerequisite rite of passage for any thinker who wants to seriously engage with continental philosophy, social theory, or world change. In this course, you will learn about what Heidegger means by being, being in the world, Dasein, being unto death, and so many other crucial developments. But more important than all these buzzwords is just taking on this work itself and wrestling with the text. Doing so will rapidly accelerate your reading comprehension abilities and simultaneously challenge some of your most deep-seated presuppositions. As before, an introductory video to this course is shared on the end screen of this video or can be accessed from the links in the description. Being in Time Division 1 starts in June and ends July 22nd. Division 2 begins August 19th and goes through October. To sign up for Division 1 today, use the promo code BEINGINTIMEEARLYBIRDYT before the end of May for 20% off. If you feel obstructed by the cost of these courses, then we have good news. But before getting into the financial aid info, why are there even price tags at all, much less tiered pricing? First, because some people just want to audit, whereas others want constructive critical feedback or even one-on-one -on -one sessions. The tiers exist so that you can get the value you are seeking while compensating me, Dave, fairly for the time and energy required. Second, the prices set for these courses aim to make Theory Underground sustainable, meaning that it will bring in enough to pay for the costs of the operation, including my personal bills since I want to be a co-earner in the household when my soon-to-be wife and I start a family. <laughs> Thirdly, <laughs> Thirdly, People tend to take the things they pay for more seriously, and we want you to get the most out of this experience. With those reasons aside, we do not seek to exclude anyone who is struggling just to get by. We have a financial aid scholarship option for people who are currently between jobs or who live in a country on a cheap currency. 
like many of you who watch from Thailand, India, Mexico, or Poland. To name a few of the residents of some of the people who have already received financial aid scholarships in the last couple of months. Because I know what trying to study theory under the stresses of housing insecurity and poverty is like, the scholarship was set up during the first month of operation. Simply fill it out at https colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground dot com forward slash scholarship. Last but not least, stay tuned for the Theory Underground app coming soon to an app store near you on your phone. Yeah, and seriously, thank you for listening or watching to this point. And uh, yeah. Thanks. We look forward to taking these courses with you. Bye.